I am happy to announce that the winner is All About Eve. Parasite. Kramer versus Kramer. Chicago! West Side Show. The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. One flew over the cuckoo's Shakespeare in Love. May I have the envelope, please? It is March 24th, 2002. We are live at the Kodak Theater in Hollywood with the 74th Annual Academy Awards honoring the best movies of 2001 with our host, Whoopi Goldberg. And it is now time for the big award of the night, the envelope, please. And the Oscar goes to A Beautiful Mind, Brian Grazer, Ron Howard Producers. Welcome back to another episode of The Envelope, Please, a podcast where we watch and discuss every Best Picture Oscar winner in chronological order. And we are your hosts. I'm Sam. I'm Rance. And we're here at the Kodak Theater. Rance, how exciting. I'm so excited we're finally here. <laughs> For the first time. time, I mean, really. You know, it's interesting because the there were a few Oscars that took place in the early days at the Roosevelt, and then... A few at the Pantages in like the 50s. But for the most part, the Oscars up to this point were largely not in Hollywood, which everyone not associates with being the epicenter of movies. And this is, uh, it's appropriate that it's right next door to the Chinese theater and the Hand of the Footprints and right by the Walk of Fame. It's nice to have the ceremony here in Hollywood with what is then called the Kodak is now called the Dolby. And it's where it's still at today, and it's cool because also it's it's like literally kitty corner from the Roosevelt where the first, if I'm not correct, right, the first ceremony was held. So it's literally like across the street, one more crosswalk, there you are, where the first Academy Awards banquet, ceremony, feast, whatever you want to call it, was held. And I think that's just awesome. You know, um... You say kitty corner. I would have said catty corner. This you is one southern. of those. Co- <laughs> this is one of those colloquialisms that changes depending on region. Um, and I almost said catty corner just for your benefit, but I'm not a weirdo. I'm going to say kitty corner. <laughs> That's a southern. I didn't realize it was a southern thing. Who knew? Um, it is. It's there's... very southern. Same with like pop and soda. We in the Midwest called it pop, but when we when I went to a couple of southern stages, we were traveling for a band tour. I was at McDonald's, and I said, I would like a pop. And she looked at me, and she said, you want what? <laughs> like, <laughs> a Pepsi? And she's like, you want a soda? I'm like, yes, I do. Yes, I do. <laughs> but you know what we actually say, or at least where I'm from, we say, we say uh, uh, that you want a Coke. And then they ask Which you what kind of Coke. And they ask you what kind of Coke you want, and you're like, Dr. Pepper. And it's, um... <laughs> no, that's know. weird. That doesn't make any sense. That makes no sense. Well, you know, it is it is what it is. <laughs> so it is here, it is. Um, here we are. Uh, interestingly, the shortest ceremony of all time was at the Roosevelt, in the first ceremony, the 15-minute ceremony. And this is the <laughs> longest ceremony in Academy history. At four hours and 33 minutes. Good lord. Good lord. (laughs) 
Imagine a ceremony going that long today. I can't. I mean, if I you were on the East Coast, it was the next day when it when it finished. You know. True. Um, that's uh, I mean, it's crazy. Um, they would go they would go insane if they went that long this time, and uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but you know, it's. Also, it was a very well-reviewed ceremony, um, according to the contemporaneous um, pundits who have opinions on what the Oscar ceremonies look like. And um, it was a night that was full of historic moments and um, some real drama with a lot of um, a lot of uh, spreading of the wealth as far as the awards went. So true. That's very true. And yeah. I think it's also important to mention this is this is the Oscar ceremony that happened immediately after 9-11. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of that sprinkled into the ceremony, too. And I think we should also mention this was Woody Allen's first appearance at the Academy Awards. He made an appearance on the stage to, oh, sort of shed light on 9-11. Also, as kind of like a, a pleading for people to please continue making movies in New York City. It's very important we keep that spirit alive. Because he's um, so associated with New York-based films. Absolutely. I mean, interesting. Interesting. Um, interesting. I We've talked about Woody Allen before, and I, I won't say anything yes, further have. on that. Go back to the <laughs> Annie Hall episode if you want to know my opinions. But... Um, uh, but, you know, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, um, who is now New York-based, I don't think she was at the time, um, she uh, returns for the fourth time. This is her last time to date that she has hosted the Oscars. It looked like she was going to be in rotation there at this point, but then she kind of... Uh, I, I highly doubt she'll be hosting the awards again because I think she's viewed a little bit more... Um, uh, she's she's more of a hot button figure because she's weighed so much into the public discussion on po- on politics and 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 whatnot and you know the academy likes to choose somebody um, who is a little bit more everybody likes them kind of for awards so unfortunately I Whoopi this is Whoopi's uh, last time hosting unless something else happens in the future and I have to say. She's great, as always. She's always great. Fabulous. She um, she uh, comes down to start the ceremony in a Nicole Kidman Moulin Rouge-inspired <laughs> uh, outfit. And I, by comes down, I mean she comes down from the ceiling on a trapeze and lands in the audience and then walks up and delivers her uh, little monologue, um, you know, poking... Uh, poking fun at various movies saying that you know iris is so depressing even ingrid bergman cried i mean ingmar bergman bergman cried you know uh, (laughs) she talks about how much mudslinging there was in the in the um lead up to this talking about the the way campaigning had gone apparently there had been a lot of uh controversy in campaigning not sure specifically what she was uh uh, referring to, but um, we do have some really interesting. Uh, we have a very interesting best picture lineup this year. I think. Yes, we do, and I want to point out too. This is something that I found 
really fascinating here. We we finally we've we've talked about the last couple of years wanting that animated feature category being introduced. Mm-hmm. This is the year we finally get our first Oscar for best animated feature. And it goes to the movie Shrek. Now, it, I feel like its biggest competition was the other nominee, Monsters, Inc., which is probably my personal favorite. But I wanted to point out that the BAFTAs gave Eddie Murphy a nomination for supporting actor for voicing Donkey in Shrek. If you remember, last episode we talked about you know how voice actors deserve just as much recognition as any live performance would in a feature film, and I love that like the BAFTAs are sort of on the cutting edge of that that they gave mm-hmm. Eddie Murphy a nomination for voicing Donkey because he is brilliant in Shrek. Oh, both for he sure. and um, Michael Myers are great. Those voiceover performances are just pitch perfect. What do you know? Oh, no! this is gonna be fun. We can stay up late swapping manly stories, and in the morning, I'm making waffles. Um, but what do you think? Do you think Eddie Murphy maybe should have deserved an Oscar nomination for supporting actor for voicing Donkey? What do you think about that? I mean, it's an interesting discussion. Again, it's like, how do we quantify voice roles? That's a barrier that we haven't broken at any point in the Oscars history. And, um, you know, I mean, personally, I, I'm i all for finding a way to take away John Boyd's domination. But... Um, <laughs> Personally, <laughs> yes, me too. That has less to do with his performance and more to do with his politics. But, um, you know, I, but um, it would have been, um, I, I, I wouldn't have been upset with it. I mean, he definitely, I think in a similar way to the way Robin Williams might have earned one for Aladdin and he didn't get one. It's in that mm-hmm. same, it's in that same realm. Um, but also, and I don't know what the benchmark too. is. Yeah. If we think about this too, if we're going to bring Monsters Inc. into the conversation, we have John Goodman and Billy Crystal delivering equally iconic voice performances. You know, for Sully and Mike Wazowski and those those characters. Um, and do I think you, there's an argument for either of them. Do you think that outweighs? Uh, I mean, or that weighs in the same way that Denzel or Russell Crowe or or any of the other nominees do. I mean, like, do you consider that? I just feel like, you know, if... There's something to be said about seeing an animated character on the screen and have it affect you personally, in large part because of the voice coming out of that animated character, mm-hmm. you know? And... But yeah, how do you, I do. If, I think the question is, like, part of that performance is being drawn by someone else or is being true is is being generated if it's computer generated graphics in some way by someone else. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. is that something that you weigh differently since it's only one half of what somebody who's fully acting, you know, it's it, it's, it's a tough, tough it's a really tough call. Is there a separate category? Is that the proper way to judge it? Well, and maybe that's something we should talk about. You know, should there be a category that is, you know, we have best animated feature and then maybe, you know, as another category, best voiceover performance. Do we group both men and and women in there? Do you gender that as well? It's, you know. Exactly. It's a can of worms. And that's probably why this hasn't been bridged because it is a can of worms, you know. 
It is, you know, but yeah. you know where we are right now sitting with the Oscars, I feel like if there is a voice over performance that weighs heavily enough in your conscious in mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. permeates your experience so vastly when you're watching a movie, I think there is a legitimate conversation that that voice over performance deserves, deserves as much res- recognition as it, and as much as the nomination as some of these live action performances I do I don't know if that if that comes from Shrek or if that comes from Monsters Inc but I think as we start to get further into the 2000s and especially in the 2010s we are going to start talking about voiceover performances even in the live action films that that weigh incredibly heavily in you know in my experience of watching a movie and I think they do deserve some recognition I I will I will say that this is a discussion that we should have. I I won't Absolutely. say the solution, but I'll agree to the discussion. Um, Absolutely. This is also a year that brings us. I remember watching the ceremony actually, and um, this is a year that brings us two extremely significant honorary awards. Which I like mm. to mention these, as you know, because yes. sometimes this is good evidence of why this should be something on the telecast. You got Robert Redford, who everybody knows and loves, and he was given his honorary Oscar after having previously won a competitive Oscar for Ordinary People directing, Um, and he was presented by Barbara Streisand. Now, I'm just going to repeat those names, Barbara and Robert, (laughs) the way we were Uh. reunion. Like, if that's the type of honorary situation, I mean, I'm trying to think of something comparable. That movie came out, like, you know, 20-something years before the ceremony, almost 30. So, like, something 30 30, years ago would be the early 90s, okay? So let's say that we have, um, uh, who's who's a really big actor from the early 90s? Like, um, uh... Anthony Hopkins. Anthony Hopkins, okay? We have we have Jody, Jody Foster, Foster presenting <laughs> presenting Anthony Hopkins an honorary award. Like I'm just saying that as a hypothetical cuz that would be a comparable. Tell me that that's not something people wouldn't want to watch. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, that's why it should be there. Further, we also have the most emotional moment probably of the night when Sidney Poitier Poitier, excuse me. Poitier. Uh, Poitier. Um, is presented an honorary <laughs> award by Walter Mirisch, the producer of movies like In the Heat of the Night, and um, and uh, 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 good Lord, uh, um, Denzel Washington, of course, who would go on to win Best Actor this night. Um, so you have the person who is going to be winning Best Actor that night, although he has not yet. He's going to become the second black actor to win best actor and on the exact same night he gives the honorary award to the first black man to win that award that is a beautiful beautiful moment and that is the type of thing that honoring our past can bring in the ceremony so um just again advocating for that to that stuff not to be shoved um, off the telegast. All right. Couldn't agree more. Couldn't agree more. Okay, let's get into some snubs. Now, I just want to say at the top of this episode, Rance, I love the movies that came out in this year. If you remember, 
all good the year. way back, we did our good first year. introduction. We talked about our what some of our favorite years of the Oscars, and I brought up this year. This is not only the first ceremony I can remember watching from start to finish, but it mm-hmm. now has some of my favorite movies released in the year that quite a few of them nominated for Best Picture. So I am very happy with a lot of these nominations. So I only have three snubs I want to mention. Go ahead. The first one in the leading actress category. Rance, I love Reese Witherspoon in Legally Blonde. Oh my god, that was one of mine. I'm not even kidding. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. I... I love Legally Blonde. We can tag team this. I mean, go ahead, say what you're going to say. I I just think she is perfect. And and I really feel like when you watch this movie, the role of Ella Woods kind of looks simple. She's playing a quote-unquote dumb blonde trying to prove herself in a world of men, right? You got into Harvard Law? What, like it's hard? This is a very difficult role. It is incredibly hard to pull off what Reese Reese Witherspoon does. Witherspoon. But she does. She does. And she does it with such, oh God, with such um, charisma that we not only fall in love with her, but by the end of the film, we want her to win this trial. We want her to prove herself and show these people that she can play with the men. You know what I mean? She is just as good as any of them. And what's great about this too, and this is kind of the genius in the writing as well, is at the top of the film, all we think she wants is to win the love of her life, get married to the man that she has felt she's going to be married to from the beginning. But by the movie's end, that need and want of her character completely changed. She wants to win this case. Total not evolution. just for her, but for another woman who is also being, you know, um, I guess sort of taken advantage of, if you will, you know? It, yeah. It's a really, really great film, and I, and it's also a comedy, and, you know, comedy, I do genuinely think, is harder to pull off than a uh, searing dramatic performance, and and you hear the, the name Elle Woods, and you can't picture anybody else but Reese Witherspoon. She owns this role through and through. Hi. Woods, comma, Elle? Although I will say, Laura Bell Bundy was great in Legally Blonde, the musical. That which she is was. That she was. A great, Correct. which is a really fun musical, which ha- was recorded for <laughs> posterity, if you haven't seen it. Um, but uh, we, I'll see your Reese Witherspoon, and I'll raise you a Best Supporting Actress for Jennifer Coolidge. Because... Paulette Bonafonte. Paulette. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm taking the dog. Dumbass. She's so, um, she's the perfect, like, sidekick. She's the perfect, um, comic relief in a, in a great movie that is, uh, I mean, like, honestly, I think it's one of those female-driven movies that is, that is underrated critically because it is female-driven. And, I mean, that is a thing that happens, in case you guys did not weren't aware of that but i (laughs) but you know it's almost like um because we filled that rom-com slot that happens once every 10 years with bridget jones's diary although we will get a rom-com nomination next year too but we'll get there um (laughs) um in another really good movie but we'll talk about that next year um uh bridget and i 
Renee Zellweger, Bridget Jones Diary, yes, 100% on board with that nomination. I'm just saying Reese deserves to be in that conversation, and people who support those movies deserve to be in those conversations as well, because a really great comedy is often made up of, it's those people on the side who are making you have the belly laughs, which is the case with this movie. I'd say Jennifer Coolidge has the funniest character in the film. Another uh, movie uh, that is absolutely laugh-out-loud hilarious that doesn't deserve many Oscar nominations because it's not actually that good. But I'll say... Kathy Bates as the squirrel lady in Rat Race is really, really funny. <laughs> and... Wow, was not thinking you were going to go there, but you went there. <laughs> Speaking of Whoopi, Whoopi Goldberg. Goldberg is really funny in Rat Race, too. I'm just saying there's some funny... There's some funny performances in that. I just, I, I'm not saying that deserves Oscar nominations. I'm just saying it's a fun film. Um, and I don't want to take away a Maggie Smith nomination. I would never, ever take don't away a Maggie Smith nomination. Don't no. you dare. Don't you dare. Oh, I will say Maggie Smith um, at the awards was in the front row seated behind, beside Will and Jada. And uh, Whoopi walks up and said, oh, I see we sat the Smith family together. <laughs> that's really good that's good that's good right um i will say i'm going okay i think a big snub in a couple of categories but i will specifically say actress well i know you have two more so we'll bounce um is uh i wonder if this will be on I was going to say Naomi Watts for Mulholland Drive. Fair. Yes. She didn't make my list, but yes. I, my, yeah, I, uh, I feel like I'm kind of in the minority with that film where I get it, but that movie's a little too... Cerebral? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it, when fair. I watch, it's, it's been a number of years since I've seen that movie, and it's fair. maybe I wasn't in the right frame of mind mindset watching it. But it didn't impact me like some people have said. You know, I, I didn't put it all together. It didn't hit me like people have said it was going to. So I don't, maybe it was also talked up for me. I'm not sure. But but I get it. she Naomi Watts is great in this movie. I I totally understand that. Well, the thing that I think Naomi Watts pulls off in this movie, and the reason why I'm mentioning it, is because. For anyone who hasn't seen the film, the most common interpretation of the movie, big spoilers here, is that the first two-thirds of what you see, or first half, I forget how long it is exactly, is a fantasy. And then everything after that is reality. And so what you see is Naomi Watts' projection of what her character wishes life was. And then the reality of what her life is and who she really is. And that is such a difficult thing to play. And you spend the first half of the movie thinking that she's kind of fake. But when you realize what's actually going on, which you may not actually realize what's going on until you think about it long after the movie finishes, um, you realize the pure genius of what she's, of what, she's doing as an actress so i naomi watts is one of our our greats who has been underserved in my opinion when it comes to the academy awards and this is kind of her breakout performance in at least american films wouldn't you say about her breakout oh definitely definitely yeah yeah um 
So I, I'll mention that in stops. Now you can go with, with yours. Sure. So, okay, so my next one would be in the original screenplay category for Alejandro Amenabar for the movie The Others. This was one of my favorite, it still is one of my uh, favorite horror uh, films of all time. What a great twist in the end. And I mean, if Nicole Kidman didn't have Moulin Rouge in this year, there's a serious consideration for her to be in the leading actress category for her performance. I mean, how do you say which performance is better? That, I mean, like, she's absolutely brilliant in both movies. And oh my God. They're so, I mean, like, talk about a great year. Nicole Kidman, not only does she divorce Tom Cruise, but she has these two, <laughs> these two absolutely wonderful year. movies. And I do you? I mean, like seriously, she has the biggest year of her life. The year that she gets rid of Tom Cruise, you know. I mean, she does. It's just two absolutely fantastic, completely different films and completely different performances with completely different hair. And <laughs> she is phenomenal in both. It's a slam dunk for both of them, and, you know, if, if she wasn't nominated, I would be giving her the snub here, but since she does have a nomination for Moulin Rouge, another equally genius performance, I have to give the edge to the screenplay just because mm-hmm. of what this script accomplishes, which is one of, in my opinion, the greatest twists in all of oh. screen history. Oh, yes. I did not oh, see it yes. coming. I, I, I will still go back and watch this movie and... Just to relive that twist, it's, oh my goodness, it's so good. Even, even when you know it's coming, you, you watch the first, you know, 90% of it with such a different eye, watching the second, third, fourth, fifth time, and you pick up on little nuances and little things she says and, and, and lines that are put in there that just have different meaning and impact to you. And it's just so good. So I would have loved to see this movie give a little bit of love, which I will mention again, the BAFTAs did give the others a little bit of love. And I think the Oscars could have done so as well, at least yeah. in the screenplay category, which is where we see sort of smaller um, foreign language films sort of pick up. Momentum is usually in a screenplay category. And I think yeah. this definitely deserved to at least be in the conversation about that, definitely. Uh, did you say you had a... Was that your third stop, or did you have one more? I do have a third one. My third one is kind of a, a little bit of a, a different thing here. My third one is Jim Broadbent, um, who did win Supporting Actor for Iris. However, I think Jim Broadbent should have won the Oscar for Moulin Rouge, um, which is what he won the BAFTA for. Um, he's brilliant, Iris. Don't get me wrong. He is pitch perfect but what he does as Zidler in Moulin Rouge blows me away every time um another incredibly difficult performance there is singing there is dancing there's dramatic scenes he has with Nicole Kidman and also by himself um he is sort of the driving force just behind the musical side of Moulin Rouge that component to it I mean, the show will be a magnificent, opulent, tremendous, stupendous, gargantuan begazzlement, a sensual ravishment. It will be spectacular, spectacular. No words in the vernacular can describe this great event. You'll be dumb with wonderment. And he does it so well. I think he is 
perfect in Moulin Rouge. So I personally would have given him the nomination and the award for this instead of Iris, which is, again, a great performance. Um, but it's sort of that, you know, um, sort of suffering husband, um, um, marital figure. We see a lot in movies winning Oscars for supporting actors. So I get why he won for that role. Um, but I think Milan Rouge is just a more fun <laughs> performance of his. On that note, I would yes, like please. to mention one more. This is... It, it's so difficult because um, <laughs> there are so many good movies this year. But it does feel like Moulin Rouge, which is, in my opinion, a feat of direction, is missing uh-huh. from the director <laughs> category. It so, is. You're absolutely right. Yes. I am I am also going to spotlight Moulin Rouge. Oh, I'm so glad so, you are. Um, so I want to use this as a transitional point, a, a, a hybrid, Beautiful. if you will. Let's do it. Um, Moulin Rouge is, um, you know, Baz Luhrmann uh, is such a is such a uh, a um, what's the word I'm looking for? A uh, he's not he's not um, con- he's not controversial. He's uh, He's he's a, a, a divisive director in some ways, I think, for people. A because taste, his style, yeah, definitely. He's a taste. Because his style is so frenetic and so in-your-face. And, you know, you watch Moulin Rouge and you are in sensory overload because there is so much going on. The cutting is so quick um, between shots. Uh, the colors are so vibrant. Um, it is just a lot of everything. But when it boils down to it, the genius of the movie is that it's actually a very simple love story of uh, a man who falls in love with a woman who is a, a nightclub act slash sex worker. Um, and then she dies of tuberculosis in the film. Man, I just spoiled the whole thing. Um, and uh, <laughs> But I mean, you kind of get the it's tragic at the very beginning. So I feel like, you know, um, of course I love anything that's kind of about a a writer as you might guess. Um, (laughs) and the, and the torturedness of writing about a lost love is just like, that's like my heroine. It never gets um, old. It never gets old. old. You know, anything told in past tense. I love, um, flashback stories of the style, but, you know, the way that it weaves in the old and the new, um, the real and the unreal, the dream and the reality is so unique to this movie. Nothing has ever done it the way that this film does. And it works kind of in spite of the fact that it is so bizarre. I, I don't know. And it works because it is bizarre. And it works in spite of the fact that it it doesn't... I mean, if somebody came to you and said, hey, we're going to have our big love scene be set to um, I Will Always Love You, um, and but it's not just that. It's also um, uh, We Could Be Heroes. It's also <laughs> all these other songs. 
you know, they would say, like, that sounds a little spastic. But in the writing of this film, in the direction of this film, it, it works. And part of that is the grounding within the performances of Nicole Kidman in, um, and uh, Ewan McGregor, um, who, by the way, is missing. Yes, he is. <laughs> yes, he is. As well. Because um, he is fantastic in this film. Um, but, you know, the thing that... Uh, this is maybe the movie that has best used Nicole Kidman. I, I think I am on board with her getting the nomination for this movie, even though I absolutely love her in the others. Because there is an ethereal qual- ethereal quality that Nicole Kidman has, particularly when she has red hair. I don't know what it is about her red hair. Um, because I think she seems kind of um, otherworldly in uh, Practical Magic, too. She's supposed to be, and it, it works. Um, but nobody has better utilized that untouchable beauty that she has. Um, never has it been better used. And I love the fact that no matter how gorgeous she is, and she is... Nicole Kidman always is able to turn her looks on its head, on its head. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. And she, the thing is, like most um, classically beautiful actresses, as Nicole Kidman will do in the following year, it's almost like you know they don't they don't get their Oscar until they you know ugly it up, you know, until they put on the fake nose or they gain fifty pounds, <laughs> which is the next two years of Oscar yes, actress winners. Um, yes, it is. But in this performance, Nicole Kidman is more beautiful than she has been on film ever, maybe, because of yes. the way that Boz Lerman photographs her. And yet she's able to play the most tragic of all of her characters in this completely unreal reality. Um, it is just such a breathtaking uh, performance. It is a breathtaking breathtaking film it is such an incredible use of uh, photography and music and um you know this is probably my probably my favorite oh. film of 2001 oh ooh. uh it is incredible incredible and i would say i would credit moulin rouge with bringing in this resurgence of movie musicals that we have now without moulin rouge there is no chicago there is no resurgence that I just talked about. It really did usher in a new millennium of those big blockbuster movie musicals we saw and talked about a lot in the 1950s and 60s. Uh, And credit that to a jukebox musical. I mean, these are all songs we've heard before, (laughs) but sung from, you know, people like Hugh McGregor and Nicole Kidman. And this is what I find interesting about Moulin Rouge. There's an interview where uh, Nicole Kidman talks about this movie. She is very embarrassed by it. She cannot watch it, will not watch it, and she thinks it's like a smudge on her career. And I find that fascinating that what, what I would consider to be one of her, if not her best performance on film, is the one that she can't watch herself. And I think that says a lot about herself as a performer you know i mean she she's doing a lot of goofy things she's i think it has more to do with her singing i don't think she's a comfortable singer but i think she sings very well in this movie i think she's she has some help i think autotune came into play here but i think she sounds good and i think i think it is 
the dramatic moments that she hits in this film. I don't need you anymore! All my life you've made me believe I was only worth what someone would pay for me! But Christian loves me. He loves me, Harold. He loves me. And that is worth everything. We're going away from you, away from the Duke, away from the Moulin Rouge! Goodbye, Harold. That really soars her over the edge. So I just find it interesting that this is the one performance that she is just a little embarrassed by. And I just think that's really funny. <laughs> I will mention she also sings on a cover of the song um, Something Stupid with Robbie Williams. Um, that is extremely, extremely good. Um, so look that up. He, she did it not long after this movie. And also, we all know that Nicole Kidman's best performance is the AMC commercial that... <laughs> <laughs> so yes, how dare I forget. <laughs> we come to a uh, place like this. <laughs> you know, um, aren't you so... This is our first nomination for Nicole Kidman. And aren't you so glad we've gotten to a point in Oscar history that we get to talk about Nicole Kidman? Oh, I'm so glad. She is one of my favorites still to this day. I mean, and God, can't you, how much can you not wait to unpack all of the hours next year? I know that's the I only thing you've been thrilled. looking for. I am thrilled. Um, this is the most we're excited not you've been. Uh, this is the most excited you've been since Music of the Heart. I can just feel it. <laughs> yes, we will get to that soon. But first, I want to talk about my spotlight. Go ahead. I want to, well, a couple of things. So first, I want to spotlight what I consider to be Helen Mirren's greatest performance. That oh, this is the yes. housekeeper. We're going to get mm -hmm. into this. She plays the housekeeper Jane Wilson in Gosford Park. What gift do you think a good servant has that separates them from the others? It's the gift of anticipation. And I'm a good servant. I'm better than good. I'm the best. I'm the perfect servant. I know when they'll be hungry and the food is ready. I know when they'll be tired and the bed is turned down. I know it before they know it themselves. Rands, she tears so my good. heart out She's so at the good. end of this movie. She stomps on my heart. She tramples on it. She kicks it. She spits on it. Gosford Park is brilliant for, I mean, so many reasons. But to me, its brilliance is in the slow unraveling of the mystery, right? We don't find out who the murderer is until, uh, or even why the murder happened, really, until the very end. And I'll give a spoiler here. It was Helen Mirren. <laughs> and we find out the reason for her killing at the very end. It is that scene we find out why she does it, that Helen Mirren delivers some of the best acting in her career. It is incredible, and I fully think this should be her Oscar. She's perfectly fine in The Queen, but this to me is quintessential Helen Mirren. And anybody who's watching Gosford Park, just watch to the end. I understand from maybe modern audiences, it is a slow burn. It takes a while to get there, but just wait. I promise it is worth the runtime. Watch to the end. Um, okay, are second, you not, here's my main Are you not going to mention... Go ahead. Are you not going to mention Ryan Phillippe and how he's not in the conversation? Because, <laughs> I mean, I'm all about him in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, he's fine. <laughs> I'm totally... It, it, this is... Um, he's beautiful. I, he is beautiful. 
I, I think for my money, I just want to second what you're saying. I think for my money, Helen Mirren is probably my supporting actress winner here. So, mm-hmm. mine too. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, she's so good. Okay, my Continue. main spotlight. I want to talk about the movie in the bedroom. Oh, this I knew you were going to do this. Is Ah, we're getting into this again, too. Here we go. Here, let's buckle up, everybody. This is such a dark and depressing film, which is just my cup of tea. Um, and I feel like In the Bedroom can kind of be split into three different sections. We have the first third, which plays out kind of like a, a bit of a tragic romance, where we have the character Frank, who falls in love with Natalie, played by Marissa Tomei. She's brilliant in this. She's a recently divorced woman with kids. Um, and though Frank's parents, that is Sissy Spacek and um, Tom Wilkinson, they warn him about getting involved with Natalie. He still wants to marry her. Um, but then Natalie's ex comes back into the picture, and he gets incredibly violent and eventually kills Frank. That's the first third of the film. Then we transition to the second chunk, which... Um, this deals more with the parents, Matt and Ruth, as they're mourning the loss of their son and blaming each other for what happened, for letting it happen. And then we have what I consider to be one of the greatest turns, twists, in movies, where we have the final third of this movie, which turns into a suspense thriller like you wouldn't believe. Matt and Ruth decide that the only way they can really put this ordeal behind them is to kill Natalie's ex. So Matt, the father, picks him up, drives him out to the woods, shoots him, buries him. That's the end of the movie. It is so dark and it's such a dark turn that... But, you know, when you're watching it, it just just fits the way it's supposed to go. It fits the trajectory of this film. And that's where I'm going to talk about the screenplay here. The screenplay is brilliant, and it probably, not probably, it should have won over A Beautiful Mind. We'll get to that in a little bit here. Um, But Sissy Spacek and Tom Wilkinson deliver some of the best performances of their career here. They are what let this screenplay fly. The middle section is heartbreaking to watch. You know, we see these two practically tear each other apart with guilt and loss over their son, and it culminates in the devastating scene, which is where we have Sissy Spacek's Oscar moment on her screen, <laughs> you know, where they're in their house and she just lets him have it. They they completely rip each other apart. And I remember watching this telecast. So you remember I said this was the first one I remember watching from um, start to finish. And I remember seeing Sissy Spacek's clip as she's being presented the nomination for Best Actress. And my mouth hit the floor, Rance. I was like, this is good acting. This is what film acting is all about. Let me tell you something. You got it backwards. I know what you think, that that I was too lenient, that I let him get away with... Everything! Everything! Yes, yes, yes. Especially because the only other film at this point in my life, when I was 10 years old watching this, that I had seen Sissy Spacek in was the movie Carrie, which traumatized me when I was a child. That movie scared the shit out of me. So seeing her up on the screen as this mom dealing with the loss of a a dead son changed Mm -hmm. the way I thought about her, film acting, Mm -hmm. movies in general. This was a really transcendental moment for me. Um, And I don't want to take away Halle Berry's Oscar. I I would never do that. Never would I ever. But Sissy Spacek had to have been a close second here. And for good reason. I think it's so good. I mean... 
again, this is a great, this is a great category that you're discussing. So, um, uh, there, there definitely is a lot, uh, to unpack here because we got, we also have a, a great Judy Dench. We have a great Renee. We have a great Nicole and we have clearly people that we have discussed prior to this who were also probably in the conversation before the nominations came out. So this was a, this is a stacked year. Um, but cosign everything that you just said. And I love Sissy Spacek. And also my first introduction was, was Carrie. Um, and, uh, but I didn't see the movie for a long time. I only saw the picture of her covered in blood and that traumatized me alone without having to see the movie. So I remember one time I was looking through, I was in a mall um, we were on vacation. I forget where we were exactly, but we were in, we went to a mall and they had like a place that had posters that you could flip through old movie posters and the Carrie poster came up, which the Carrie poster has a picture of her, uh, in the prom dress and a picture of her covered in blood. And I saw that and then I couldn't sleep that night. I watched Andy Griffith's show (laughs) on TV (laughs) trying to, um, trying to, uh, feel better. So I watched I watched Ron Howard as a baby and um, as a young kid, which brings us to our, wow, I I didn't even intend. (laughs) And it just happened. I love it. I love it. Wow. That was perfect. Let's get into it. We have to talk about our best picture winner eventually. Let's talk about A Beautiful Mind. For those who have not seen this film, uh, this is the story about famed mathematician John Nash, who was the winner of the Nobel Prize for Economics in 1994, and his struggle with paranoid schizophrenia, which he eventually is able to overcome with the support of his wife, Alicia. What do you want to say? Um, first of all, I want to get an elephant out of the room on this movie. Uh, the character of Alicia um, should have been... El Salvadorian. Correct. Um, and she is not. Um, Jennifer Connelly is not. No, not at all. <laughs> interesting. There were other actresses, including Selma Hayek, who were in the conversation for this role. Um, but Selma Hayek was the only woman of color that I saw that was on the short list for this role. So that is, I, I don't think that this casting would happen now, but this casting, and and, def, and the movie doesn't attempt to even make it seem like she's anything but white. You know, it's not like, uh, they whitewash the character. No. Um, but, you know, this, uh, I'd like to say that we are, we are past this, but, you know, 10 years later, Ben Affleck plays uh, a Latino man in another best picture winning film so correct um, correct listen so this is a lot of issues here yes there's a lot of issues here with reality versus fiction in this movie that we need to get into but first i just want to rattle off here by the numbers 
by yes. the numbers. This movie did buco bucks to the box office on a fifty-eight million dollar budget. It, it it grossed three hundred and sixteen million dollars. Uh, carries a Rotten Tomato score of seventy-four percent fresh and a letterbox score of 3.8 stars out of 5, which if you divide that, that comes out to 76%. So both of them oh, pretty huh. even there. Um, off of eight Oscar nominations, had four wins, and this is Russell Crowe's third Best Picture nominee in a row and his second Best Picture winner in a row. It really mm-hmm. shows you what the industry thought of Russell Crowe in the and- early 2000s. Might might we say this is coming off? Um, there was not a, he didn't have a nominee in ninety eight, but he also had L A Confidential in ninety seven. So this yes. is out of four years, three, um, or is that? Hold on, one, Did I do two, the math three, right? four. Out of five years, it'd be four, right? Three, four, five, five years. Out of be five four. years, he had he had that many. Yes. So and I want to talk is... about here then, speaking of Russell Crowe, of what works in this movie, Russell Crowe's performance, Russell Crow. I must admit, Russell Crow. he is hands down This is a better performance in this movie. This is a, th- yes. it, he's, he's great, in, I mean, like, he does exactly what he's supposed to do in Gladiator. I'm just saying, I think that this is a far more complex character. And yes. <laughs> uh, and what he's doing is is fantastic. And it, it this movie makes me glad that he has an Oscar because I'm not gonna I don't want Denzel to not win for Training Day because I think he's great in Training Day. Yeah, I mean, he play. I mean, Denzel plays uh, uh, the ultimate complex character in a lot of ways in Training Day. <laughs> That's very and <laughs> and um, that is it, it's not only a historic Oscar win, but I think it's a slam dunk as well. But with that said. This is Russell Crowe's best performance, and it's good that he won the year before so that he doesn't win this year. Um, uh, likewise, Jennifer Connelly is, I mean, like, it, it, I, it's not her fault that they, it's that not. the people behind the movie did what they did, but she's, she does exactly what she's supposed to do. And while I would give this to Helen Mirren, I'm not upset at her winning for this movie. No, it makes sense. You know, we talk about time and time again the, you know, the 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 suffering wife or even in this case we have a suffering husband with Jim Broadbent winning for Iris. That is a very common performance to award a supporting Oscar to and here we have it in both supporting actor and actress and she does a great job. I yeah. personally think what really ties this movie together is James Horner's score. Oh, when I yes. think of like yes. quintessential movie score, this score is beautiful. And he was so smart too by not only having the instrumentals in here, but he brings in uh, the singer Charlotte Church's voice mm-hmm. to overlay into that. And that is just what sets this music apart. I think it is breathtaking. It's beautiful if you just listen to it on its own. I mean, this score is. And no offense to the Lord of the Rings, but I would have been 100% on board with this winning. (laughs) I would have too, honestly. (laughs) And and who knew? Charlotte Church is not just uh, that girl whose voice you hear at Christmas. She also... um, Man, I don't know if you remember when she... She was hot at this point in time. Like, she had a huge Huge. Christmas album and was just... um, uh, It's so... She's used so smartly on this soundtrack. There, I mean, there's so many elements. 
You know, it, it's funny. I love Ron Howard having an Oscar. I love um, so many of the people who are involved in this movie. But I just want to repeat here. This is... The historical inaccuracies in this movie abound. <laughs> yes, well, that's what we should get like, into here. What I yes. think, what what doesn't work in this movie is the script adaptation. Yes. This is my personal opinion. I mean, if we think of A Beautiful Mind as this fabricated spy thriller movie about a genius mathematician, then I think this movie works. But if we think of this as a biopic it fails. It fails on so many levels, which is why I'm kind of upset that it won the Oscar for screenplay, because an adaptation of the uh, the, the biography that's based on the book A Beautiful Mind by Sylvia Nasser, it is not a faithful adaptation. In fact, it takes so many liberties. You know, the casting of Alicia Nash is just one of them. It's, a, you know, it's egregious, have... but that's... But let's get into the factual... I, I mean, like, you know, they Let's got divorced. Yeah. They were divorced. I mean, John Nash had and got a remarried, son but from a previous woman, you know, that he, that he abandoned. abandoned. Yeah, and had yes. zero connection with throughout the rest of his life. What I think is the greatest fabrication here is his hallucinations. I mean, the real John Nash heard voices, but he never had actual hallucinations of people in his life. And to me, when you start bringing that in, we have, you know, we're casting it's, Ed Harris, Paul Bettany, as these major roles in this film, we are we are starting to delve into La La Land. We are not in the realm of, um, you know, non-fiction reality This is not a this biopic. Person. This, and he's still, yes. oh, let's keep in mind, the guy was still alive when this movie... He was. Yes. He lived for another like thirteen years. He both yes. he and his wife, um, who did get remarried eventually, um, they died in a car accident. Um, a Tragically, taxi cab. Yeah. yeah, a taxi cab that they were in hit a guardrail and and they died. But um, it, it's just so interesting that they veer so far off the reality. Now, you know. If you put all of that aside, if you were just to watch it and not realize that this was a biography, it's well-crafted. It does the pump fake extremely well. Um, Because you... I I think until the moment um, she goes out to that shed, you're kind of on board with them, you know? Um and yeah. it does a really great movie of a great way of presenting that reality. And then you think back and you're like, oh, I never saw any of these people with anyone else but him. And you realize that that's the reality. And I get what they were trying to do from a cinematic standpoint. So, you know, as yes, it stands, no, it's a works. well-made film. That works. Absolutely. I mean... Th- the writing of those scenes and how that came about, and even you know when you delve into this, they when you re, if you were to rewatch it, you, the their first lines, his hallucinations, you don't see them first, you hear them first, mm-hmm. and that's very important because everybody else who talks to John Nash in this movie, you see their face and we know they're real, but his hallucinations, smart. we have an auditory. Um, uh, I guess uh, presence of them to begin with, and then we which see is their where 
I'll say its most deserved Oscar, I think, is Ron Howard's direction. I think the direction is what pulls this movie off, honestly. Um, yes. Because we can we can quibble about the inaccuracies in the screenplay. The performances are all very good. But basically, the thing that pulls this together is you have Ron Howard sinking his teeth into an opportunity to really show what he can do. You know, or maybe he just thought, you know, darn it, I made the Grinch last year. I guess I better. (laughs) 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 He had to redeem himself. I I love the Grinch. The Grinch is a good movie. (laughs) Um, But I, but you know, there is, there are some, there are some base problems here. And I'll tell you, I think the biggest base problem is just that this is up against in the bedroom. This is up against Moulin Rouge. This is up against Gottsford Park. This was nominated for me over Mulholland Drive and Legally Blonde. Um, for serious. Um, <laughs> We're being serious here. Um, and, you know, I said Moulin Rouge, but now I'm thinking maybe Gottsford Park is my... Um, you know, It's hard, this, right? It's hard. It, thing- this slew of five nominees, these are some of my favorite... You know, we talked about 1967 being a huge year of, like, the Oscar could have gone to any of those movies besides Dr. Doolittle. But I think we have another year here. I think there is a legitimate... We haven't even talked about Lord of the Rings yet. We have not even talked about it yet. But do you think that... I mean, like... Okay, Robert Altman is a director who's come up a few times on this podcast. Um And he is known for big, big cast movies that have kind of a slow burn to them and that are very, like, sit in the conversation and let the story develop on its own. That's the type of movie he makes. Do you think, in a lot of ways, like, I think most people would probably say Nashville is his uh, is his movie. Um, in a lot of ways, I feel like Godsford Park is almost like the culmination of his whole career. You know what I'm saying? Oh, I do. It is my it may favorite be Robert his, Altman. I think it is best. It is his best film. He does do one or two movies after. I know he has Prairie Home Companion. I don't know if there's anything besides that after this. But um, Gosford Park does definitely feel like it's also the most. Uh, it's probably the most commercial movie he ever made because a lot of his films are harder to access, and I think this having a murder mystery makes it a little bit more uh, audience friendly. Definitely, 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 definitely. And I, oh man, this is interesting because we, uh, I'm actually quite shocked that they did not give Robert Altman his Oscar for Gosford Park, but we kind of have a, a little duel here between two industry veterans, Robert Altman um, and Ron Howard. And I think it may have been fresher in the Academy's mind that only what, six years ago, Ron Howard got snubbed for Apollo 13, you know? And which which might, is probably which Ron Howard's to be best movie. His best movie, you know? So I think that may have been fresher in people's minds, you know? And maybe it was more immediate to give him the Oscar for this film, but And A Beautiful I Mind was shocked. hugely popular with audiences. Huge, and, you know, but this and it to is me would have great. Been... It is well directed. It is a very well directed film. That is the reason I think it comes off at all. It is, but like you look at what Robert Altman is doing in Gosford Park, 
it is so hard directing that many people any large cast like the the way they move and you know if you watch Gosford Park the camera is always moving it is always tracking somewhere it's on a dolly somewhere Mm -hmm. there is no static camera movement in Gosford Park to do that and to choreograph you know sometimes there are 15 20 people in a scene that he is choreographed and moving around you know without Gosford Park we don't get Downton Abbey, you know, this is Julian Fellow's sort of introduction to the mainstream audience and this sort of upstairs, downstairs um, uh, story that he is so popular about. I feel like it is the choreography of how that's laid out that Mm -hmm. that Robert Altman does, which is what makes it so interesting, fascinating, you know, and I, I am shocked that Robert Altman did not win the direction Oscar. Oh, because I probably would have voted for him. I would have. <laughs> I would have. <laughs> well, you know, and the thing is, like, if we had done that and A Beautiful Mind still won Best Picture, which, you know, I mean, is not our choice, then Ron Howard would still have an Oscar because he produced A Beautiful Mind as well. So, I mean... Totally. But you also, know, I also feel could like be a Ron fair Howard way to... has... But Ron Howard has another great movie in just a couple of years with Frost Nixon. I think Frost Nixon is a great uh, film. Frost and Nixon. to like adapt something that is so and accurate and much more accurate to history. Much, much yeah. more. But you know, I feel like it's always kind of a difficult thing to bring something from the stage and make it cinematic. That's very challenging. And he does that so well with Frost Nixon. So, I don't know. Maybe, you know, the Oscars were kind of like, well, this is our moment. Maybe Ron Howard won't give us another great film like A Beautiful Mind. So they rushed to give him the award. And also we have Russell Crowe here, you know. Russell Crowe is hugely popular. I think that played a part into this movie staying in Academy voters' minds. You know, it could be a case, too, where... Maybe more of them just saw it, you know? I mean, it grossed way more money than Gosford Park did, so obviously more people Although watched Park A Beautiful Mind. did do well for, um, it did do well for uh, a movie of that type, I think. It, it made its money back, but, um, you know, it's also, do you know something that's interesting to me? I'm just thinking about this. Um, you know, this is uh, the year of probably the last successful-ish movie that Meg Ryan made, uh, Kate and Leopold. And I love Kate and Leopold. <laughs> I mean, I mean, it's also like our really, it's our mainstream in introduction to Hugh Jackman as well. So Very let's true. not. Um, but the thing that I think is interesting about Russell Crowe being so hot during this period is this is the period where Meg Ryan's um popularity hemorrhages and a lot of that came from the scandal that um happened when the tabloids reported the affair between her and meg ryan which occurred while they were filming proof of life which occurred while she was married to dennis quaid and i just think Mm. it's interesting that her career suffered during this period, while Russell Crowe won an Oscar, got another Oscar nomination, and his movies made so much money. And Kate and Leopold was not as successful as her previous um, romantic comedies have been. I'm just saying that that is a good commentary, I think, 
on the way that we hold men and women to different standards. That is true. That is very true because it, I mean, it's, it is a fact. I mean, Russell Crowe, this is sort of the apex of his career. You know, he has a, a couple more hits too in subsequent years, Cinderella Man being one of them. Um, but this, I feel like we are at the height of Russell Crowe popularity here. Um, and I do think that that is what helped A Beautiful Mind cross the finish line. He was great in Gladiator. He just won an Oscar. So I think eyes were on him for this movie, a biopic, a real person. Is he, you know, people were probably even thinking to themselves, like, this is sort of a test for Russell Crowe. Is he a good actor? Is he a great actor? And after watching this, I think they realized, oh, Russell Crowe is a great actor oh, he is um, and the fantastic. movie around him supports it as well you know the th- the fact is like a beautiful mind falls apart it's a little house of cards that falls apart when you realize the fact that you're you're not watching an accurate depiction of history and that's something where people can have a debate of whether or not a movie is supposed to accurately depict history or is it just supposed to be entertaining is there yeah. something insidious and wrong about presenting something as it didn't happen? Is it okay if you get the spirit of what the person was? And that is that is ultimately, well, I think, going to come down to personal preference. It does. And even, you know, the author of the book this was based on, Sylvia Nasser, she even said about... You know, Akiva Goldsman's screenplay. She even said that this he invented a narrative that, while far from a literal telling, is true to the spirit of Nash's story. So, and we've talked about this even too with some of our other, you know, um, factual best picture winners that are supposed to be based on real people, Braveheart, even even last year's Gladiator. You know, we've talked about how. How much do we give to screenwriters and to directors? How much give is there with playing with history? Can you sacrifice X amount of details for entertainment's sake? What is allowed? You know, and I feel like sort of with those films, which maybe took place, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, there may be some more give there, right? Mm -hmm. But for someone who was is still alive when this award ceremony was going on and who was, you know, a huge name from the 60s up until this present date, how much mm-hmm. give do we have here? And we haven't even touched upon the fact that they didn't talk about his homosexuality, you know, his tendencies toward that as well, his um, his his racial slurs, he said, about anti-Semitism. You know, there's there's many things that, that, that they chose to ignore, mm-hmm. to deliver... Mm-hmm. You know, package certain, this, yeah, this movie, cleaner, neater, you know, to you a know. cleaner, neater film. You know, and I mean, this movie is already two hours and fifteen minutes, so there's not a lot of give on the runtime on adding that stuff in. I mean, you know? I don't but, know, Sam. We've had some movies that have decided two hours and fifteen minutes is nothing in comparison <laughs> to what they're ready to give us. Um, if this movie had been made in 1985, it would have been three hours and twenty five minutes long. Correct. Because, but they chose to tell a different story, and that yes. story was a man struggling with a disease who is able to overcome it by the support and the love of his wife. And because of that, he succeeds, you know, and that is a beautiful story. Is it true? Is it what happened? 100% no. 
but it is a beautiful story, you know? And that's why A Beautiful Mind is a good movie if you take away <laughs> the fact that it's based on real people. So let's let's hear it then, Rand. So of, of these five nominees, what is your best picture winner? I was so confident <laughs> about Moulin Rouge earlier until I started <laughs> you thinking were. again you about Gottsford Park. Um, uh, uh, Gottsford Park. Mm. Final answer. She changes her tune. Yeah, yeah. Gosford Park is the winner. This is yeah. very hard for me. I love, God, I love all these movies. I even love A Beautiful Mind. I love all these movies. My heart, oh God, no. Listen, if, if, if I didn't know <laughs> that Lord of the Rings is going to have two sequels that are equally as good, if not better, than the original, I would say Lord of the Rings. But my heart then is saying in the bedroom. I would love in the bedroom to have one best picture. Man, what a good year though. I mean, these aren't what not, a good there's year. no bad choices. I, I think that this is a good this is a really good year. And we get to talk about a great year next episode too. We're gonna I talk mean, about God. next week our two thousand and two best picture winner, speaking of the return of movie musicals we have the movie chicago rance i love this movie chicago. so much do you like chicago oh yeah for sure <laughs> i i mean I like of course i do i mean it's definitely my type of movie um and uh man i'm excited to talk about chicago i'm excited i honestly i just know that a lot of this episode is going to be devoted to you talking about the hours i just feel like that is probably one of i know that you love chicago but i feel like the hours feels like it's one of sam's favorite movies it 100 percent is one of my favorite movies and is a movie that i will watch if i'm just feeling down <laughs> which is very weird and you want to feel more down and I, is that i do <laughs> i do listen i i'm of this like belief where if you're feeling like mopey and a little depressed watch something that is equally mopey and depressing and it will bring you out of it and the hours whenever, is that kind of movie whenever you're feeling mopey and depressed watch something where someone weighs themselves down with rocks <laughs> and walks into a river and you will feel maybe my life isn't so bad Exactly. You understand. You understand. <laughs> this will be a great conversation. All right, so join us next week. We will talk about the 2002 Oscars and the big winner, Chicago. Chicago.